gentlemen, I have created this thing! What is it? I don't know! Stand over here! Yeah, you mean right here? Oh. It works! I am one can short of a six-pack! As far back as educated men have recorded their history, veils have been lowered to disclose a vast new reality, rents in the fabric of man's awareness. And somewhere in the endless search of the curious mind lies the next vision, the next key to his infinite capacity. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome back for part two of our interview with Dr. Bashar Saab. At this point, we had been interviewing Dr. Saab for about two hours, and it was roughly 5.30 a.m. in his part of the world, which is Switzerland. Oddly enough, he's Canadian. He's just based out of Switzerland. But I had figured, hey, this guy's probably tired because we'd been talking for a long time. Uh, when I said, I'm going to let you go, he reminded me that we also were supposed to talk about near-death experiences and neurology, mostly because we were coming up on the one-year anniversary of Lobo, the co-host, almost passing away on us. So we talk about that for a little bit, and then we talk about dreaming, and then we talk about what consciousness is, at least from a neurological standpoint. And one more time, I really want to take a second to thank Dr. Saab for coming on the air with us, taking the time out to stay up that late or get up that early and spend three hours on the air with us and giving us probably one of the coolest interviews that we've ever done. So Dr. Saab, if you're out there listening, thank you very much. You were a great guy to talk to. You're a lot of fun. You're very cool. And in my opinion, you're doing some really cool French science over there. In the show notes for this episode, as with the last episode at projectarchivist.com, you will find links to thehypothesisjournal.com and circuitsofcuriosity.com. Circuits of Curiosity is a research website that covers a lot of what Dr. Saab is working on right now. Also, the Hypothesis Journal, as Dr. Saab describes it, is a pretty cool little online journal that's open to more speculation and theorizing than most science journals, yet still has a rigorous external review process. It's a charity organization for which he volunteers, so there's no financial gain to him. Uh, they don't charge readers or authors, but instead survive off direct founding from a couple of universities. We hope that one day to be able to go to place for mind-blowing scientific ideas. Some of the stuff published already is pretty damn cool, and much of the content is probably the kind of material you and Lobo and your listeners would be into. So you can find that at hypothesisjournal.com, and as I just said, links for those will be on the show notes as well. Um, that's it. And we'll see you guys at the other side of this interview. Take care. Peace. Well, let me ask you this, and then I'm going to I'll let you go from the interview because we've had you on here for a while now. I thought we were going to talk about near-death experiences. You know what? <laughs> I, we, we, we can. We can. If you've got the time, we can. You want to do that? 
sure, we can talk about that. I just didn't know how much time you have for, for being on the show tonight. Um, well, I mean, it's not, it's not like I have any other engagements at uh, four four thirty in the morning. Or that's something. the other thing. It's four thirty in the morning. I mean, <laughs> I got to fit it just fine here. Absolutely. <laughs> well, in that case, all right. If you want to, um, we'll put all this other stuff behind us and then move right on to that. You've listened to our episodes at this point with uh, when we had Tom on here and Lobo's experiences with yeah. when they almost bit the farm. Um, and I've been curious to yeah, talk well, to somebody happy, happy uh, you, you recovered, you recovered fine, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. coming up on the anniversary actually. It's already passed. Yeah. It's already passed. Yeah. Yeah. It was, so uh, it's a, it's a year, it's a year, it's been a year since then. So it's time. I mean, I, when I just listened to those episodes like two days ago, right? So they're all fresh in my mind, but, cool. uh, but Rojan kept saying, look in a year, man, in a year, in a year, I'm really curious to see how you're going to feel about this. And I guess a year has gone by, so. Years, yeah, year was, uh, let's see, last week. Last week was a year that's gone by. And I've had some, I've had some awakenings to certain things and I'm still, I've still got a shitload of questions. Right, yeah. That's a good point to bring up, Besh. Um, what have you, you know, what realized or have, what have you pulled out of it so far within the year? Well, uh, back in 95 when I, uh, got clean. The day before I got clean, I actually attempted suicide. And I, the, uh, the voice that I heard, I'm not saying it was supernatural, I'm not saying it wasn't my own subconscious, but the voice told me to get up, clean myself off, and go and get help. And the voice that was talking to me throughout my entire experience, up until, I don't know, maybe a month ago, I finally realized that it was the same voice that was talking to me. Do you think it was your subconscious? I don't see why not. Your subconscious wants you dead. <laughs> this is essentially what you're saying. <laughs> I know. I just sent you a text last week about that. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I'm not saying I don't I don't believe what I had happen is supernatural in any any aspect at all. Mm -hmm. At this point. That's and what when I it first happened, I told you I didn't think it was supernatural. That's what I was telling Besh before we when we started setting all this up. I was like, I certainly don't want, you know, I'm, I'm not asking anybody to believe in life after death, but Besh, you deal neurologically, you know, with these kinds of things. I don't, I don't know. You probably don't study, you know, near death experiences like that in relation to neurology. How do you think all this stuff ties in with neurology? Because they say when a person dies, they're essentially having a mental experience when they have these near death experiences. Um, I know when somebody they've they've tested people like uh, airplane pilots at high at high speed, and they report seeing the tunnel of light experience as well before they pass out, because it's your eyes constricting and the oxygen and all those kinds of things. Where do you where do you think this falls into place with with, with regards with what you do? One thing is I I can say is that out of every like story or anything I've heard that's been invented or imagined. The, the things that and the concepts that I've discovered through science have always been the most mysterious and splendid and odd of all of them. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because uh, I really think that there's a huge amount of things that we can explain by science. I mean, a huge amount of things. Near-death experiences are, are very real. The visions that people see are real. Um, but my guess is that these are products of the brain. Um, and I don't think that's any less special 
or any less mysterious than something that people would normally describe as supernatural. Um, I, I, I just think that the brain is actually much more special than we realize. Um, uh, that the universe itself is much more special than we realize. And, and so I, I think that, yeah, like I, I, the, the tunnel experiences, I think, are now fairly well understood. Um, we, we understand that when you start losing oxygen, uh, blood flow to the brain, that one of the first things to go is, is your vision. And essentially, you still have some light coming through, but it's not the normal light that you see. And so you, you experience it as, as, as a bright light, and it can look like a tunnel because it more or less just comes from the, from the center. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so, I mean, that, I think that's, that's actually fairly well understood as to why that happens. The, the really, really important thing to, under, to understand about the brain is that it's, it's like a sense maker. It takes information and it creates a reality with it. I mean, everything that we experience is really just, you know, our brain making sense of something, right? For example, we see everything upside down, but then we flip it in our brains. Um, you know that, like, like molecules are made up of atoms, right? And the distance between a um, the distance between the nucleus, like the center of the atom, and the electrons that orbit it, is is huge compared to the actual size of the nucleus or the electron itself. So essentially everything is just entirely empty space. I mean, mm-hmm. And yet we see what look to be like concrete objects. This is just our brain creating this stuff, right? Like it doesn't think like the reality of, 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 of life is like very different than what we actually experience because our brain is specifically designed to make sense of the information that comes in. When you go through, uh, near-death experience, this is usually associated with um, changes in blood flow to the brain and different, uh, you know, so you have different levels of glucose and and other resources for the brain. And this actually triggers different types of electrical activity. They've done recordings recently of of the rat brain and they give the rat like a heart attack. And then they see, like you don't just see like a decrease in brain activity, you actually see very specific, you know, waves of activity that go through the brain. Um, which in some ways is kind of surprising. And many of these waves are the similar ones that you see when, when people are dreaming and, 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 and so forth. And so you're getting all this information which is shooting through the brain and you make sense of it. Um, and, and, and essentially you create this, 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 this reality. So near-death experience makes a lot of sense at the neurological level. And I think it can be explained quite well and how it works. Now, the, the really cool thing about it is, this, is the stuff that you talk about afterwards. It's like, well, like, what does this stuff mean? Why did my brain interpret it that way? Um, because essentially it's your previous experiences and the memories that you've had beforehand, which, which are going to determine how you, how, how you make sense of this potentially nonsense information that's caused by blood flow changes and so forth. And that itself can be extraordinarily insightful for, for who you are as an individual, for how you want to go forward in your life. Um, and it could be extremely beneficial for protecting you from actually dying at that, that, that point in time. Um, so for example, you know, in Lobo's, you know, experience, like you got to a point where you were like, you know, screw you, weird animals and so forth. I'm getting out of here and I'm going back. Um, if your brain wasn't able to, to have these, you know, these electrical patterns and to make sense of things and incorporate, you know, like the elements of, of, of the actual experience that you had in your life, you may have passed over to the other side and you may have, have, have really never come back. And, uh, and so I think... I think that, that these things are, are quite real. I think they can really be explained at the, the level of the brain. And I think that they're also really important. So You sound you know, like that, you're describing kind of like an REM dream state for the most part. I think that that's probably one of the most similar 
uh, similar ways to, to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating I, that, that he, I've come to grips with what I believe happened for the most part. And I think it is fascinating that you get shaken so deeply by a physical, uh, a physical change. Well, you know, in a shock instance that what you bring out of it is essentially certain things that are life changing, mm-hmm. you know, like, and just one example, I was talking to my wife today about it and it's going to sound trite and just foolish, but before, before I went into the hospital, before the experience, I was pretty much a staunch opponent against McDonald's food. <laughs> and when I got out of the hospital, I'd been on so many different antibiotics that, and my, for, for all intents and purposes, the tip of my tongue turned black while I was there before I, before I started getting help. So a lot of my taste buds were just gone. But when I got out of the hospital, the first food that I ate that was after all the antibiotics and my taste started coming back was McDonald's. Sorry. And I have this insatiable (laughs) appetite for McDonald's now. And it's just, it's not that it's, it's not that it's delicious and it's not that it's. No, it's not at all. (laughs) It's it's not that it's good for me because I know it's not. But it's just the fact that it's just it's like a comfort food at this point. Like this is the first thing that actually tasted good. You had one of the most profound experiences of your life, and all you got out of it was a craving for McDonald's. I'm t- <laughs> what did you bring back with you, Big Macs? That's what tells me that that it's not. You know, there was no baby Jesus. I didn't see baby Jesus. Well, a lot of people. I came out and had a cheeseburger. The, no, but below the well, Rojan, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that most people, when they have these near-death experiences, a lot of people don't see the tunnel of light. A lot of people don't see relatives. They don't. A lot of people's near-death experiences are very different. But when Tom was on here, listen to his experience. You know, mm. he never saw God. He never was given any kind of a message. He just saw alternate realities and alternate timelines. You went someplace else. Um yep. You never saw, head. yeah, you know, you never saw God or anything like that. I tend to wonder if these near-death experiences, if they are happening on this kind of a level, if they are based on what we perceive of things. You're not a very religious person. Tom wasn't a very religious person. So therefore, your experiences didn't really have to do with religion. Whereas a person who may be deeply religious, that is the reality that their brain creates for what they do. That's yeah. sort of how I'm thinking of it too, yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I could, I can respect that because you know what it, what you have inside your skull is what you feed it. You know, but in the same instance, I was a Jehovah's Witness for fourteen years of my life. Yeah, but you don't carry that belief system over with you now. It's not. But it's still in there. It's all yeah. still in there. Yeah, but it's not something that you put belief in. It's not. Nope. It's I'd rather not, light it on fire and roll it down a hill. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. You know, like if Besh were to have a near-death experience, his would probably be vast, vastly different than yours and Tom's. So, you know, it's it's this could very well – myself, I don't really have an opinion on it. But if it is a dream state kind of thing, your brain's going to make sense out of what it has. Yep. Uh, like the gentleman that just released the book lately, I believe he was a neuroscientist where he said his brain was completely shut off. And he died, and when he came back, he had no brain activity whatsoever, but he had all these instances happen to him. Um, Ozone Nightmare, they were talking on there about it, and Lando brought up the point. He's like, well, what if his his brain was just rebooted and it was trying to make sense of what everything that happened to him in that period of time? So 
I mean, does the brain work like that? Would it, can, it, can it reboot and just say, all right, I need to make sense of what happened to me and just create memories along those lines? Um, I don't really know about the whole reboot thing and the brain turning off. It, it, I mean, the, the, it's, it's really difficult to define, you know, death. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's the reason why there's, there's like the clinical death. Um, and clinical death is, is not death at all in any sense mm-hmm. it's just it's just a specific you know set of criteria in fact fainting is it, it, fainting according to the criteria of clinical death classifies as death <laughs> wow i've been dead a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's just, it only lasts uh, a few seconds which is why people don't you know uh, get get that excited about it but people do also do have you know often visions associated with fainting as well that are not so dissimilar from near-death experiences. They just don't tend to be so profound, and they're not associated with the the, the emotion of of you know of almost dying. Yeah. And so so you know they're just they're just not not such an epic phenomena. Um, but uh, but yes, I mean like so so the brain having no activity and then and then coming back. I mean, I don't really understand. I really have to look at the data and, and the evidence for you know exactly how that how that you know, how that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, I mean, death, I think is really only defined by the fact that you don't come back. Um, yeah, right. if, if, <laughs> you, know, you know, like, so if, if you, if, 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 if you come back, then you, you just weren't dead. I mean, I think that's, I think that's the definition we have to accept is that the, the death is really only defined by, by the fact that you, you can't, you don't, you're not coming back. Um, otherwise it's clinical death, which is a very different thing. Mm-hmm. So, and the brain turning off and then turning back on and rebooting, I don't, I, I really have to see the data of exactly what that means. I mean, like what, like all the neurons fell silent. I mean, I find that it's essentially impossible to believe, but, but, uh, but I don't, I don't really well, know. Is that what happens when you have a coma or something like that as well? Is that, does no, the... no, no, you, your, your neurons keep, keep firing and so forth. You just, you just, it's just disengaged from like your, your, your ability to move and so forth. Um, there's lots of evidence that people in comas, even for years, you, you know, you can you can scan their brains and you say their name and you see specific neural activity. Um, so, like the, their brains really? are, yeah, 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 their brains. Are, like a lot of a lot of people in vegetative states have, have quite active brains, and a lot of them, it's looking, and this is very terrifying, but it's seeming like a lot of these people are are, are even forming memories about the stuff that's happened while they're while they're totally um, totally catatonic. So it's it's quite uh, it's it's quite interesting. So but, a person's uh, brain is still storing memories while they're in a coma, in a coma state. Not all people in coma states, but I think there's evidence that that is the case for some people. Yes, um, and it's they're starting to try to use this information to predict people that will come out. So they're looking at certain brain states and lots of people that um, are in coma states, and then they you know they follow them over time, and then they see who comes out. And they say, okay, well, people respond to these stimulations, and they're more likely to come out within a certain period of time than people who don't. And so they're really trying to get to a point where they can say, you know, this person's probably never going to come out, safe to pull the plug, you know, and, and not feel bad about it. Whereas this person has a good chance of coming out, so let's give them another few months. Um, but the brain activity doesn't stop. I mean, it's just, they're just out. Right? Hmm. See, there was just, I just listened to an episode of This American Life. It was episode 514, and there was a kid, well, when it happened, he was a kid, and uh, he essentially was what they, they thought he was, he was gone. He was brain dead. He was moved around from bed to bed he, for years and years and years, and, and he essentially came out of it, but couldn't, 
was he was comatose for for all intents and purposes. They believe he was comatose, but he snapped out of it and he could see everything. He could hear everything. He knew everything that was going on around him, but couldn't let couldn't tell anybody. Couldn't do it. He was he was a vegetable yeah. until he finally made it out of it because he ended up with um, meningitis that shut him down. And it did, the way he he can speak now, but he uses a computer like like uh, Stephen, Stephen Hawking. Yeah, he he does pretty much the same way. He he can speak to people. He can. There's conversation that's carried on. What he described when he finally made it out was that he was completely aware of everything that was going on around him. Yeah. And it's just shocking because when I, I didn't put two and two together until I'd actually heard, I mean, I've heard of cases of people coming out of a coma and saying that they remember stuff or they heard people talking to him. this guy remembered everything that was going on from like the age of like 12 to 18 when he came out of it. Yeah. They used to just put him in front of the TV to watch Barney and he couldn't move. And he just he said could, he had yeah. this immense disdain and hatred for Barney because he couldn't do anything to, to stop what was going on. But to know that the brain is continually working when we, at that point, thought that he was dead, brain dead, is astonishing to me. It, this reminds me as well um, to go off in a slightly different direction of dream hacking when people have cognitive dreams and things like that. Because at that point, you're in an unconscious state, but you're still processing what's going on in your head. Because I used to experiment with myself for quite a while with that stuff. I eventually gave up on it, but I've talked about that in other shows in the past. But um, so when you're in this unconscious state or when you're in these altered states, you're still able to process what's going on and still be able to interact with it. Dorian, when we had her on the show way back and she would talk about how her abilities to be able to control dreams and have uh, sleep paralysis and things like that, how that all works. Um I guess that could tie into near-death experiences with the way the brain processes information as well. But I was curious what you had thought about it because you deal directly with this stuff about how the neurons process information and transmit it and where it's all stored and stuff. Um, have you seen situations like this with the work that you've done? Oh, nothing directly, no. I mean, my research is um, as always Completely in a different on, field. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it's also always focused on animals. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of work with awake versus anesthetized animals, and, mm -hmm. and certainly, you know, we noticed some differences. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is this is outside of my particular field. But, um, but I spent. I mean, I knew we we had a chance of talking about this for a little bit, so I did read a couple of papers. Mm -hmm. There's not a a lot of people who are working on it, but I do think there's potential for very interesting research to be done here. Um, because I think in the vast majority of cases, people are not making this up. Um, and the specific experiences that people have can definitely be beneficial for their lives. So there's clinical importance to this, but there's also importance in understanding just how, how the brain works and understanding, you know, consciousness better, um, and the neural correlates of, of, of consciousness, which is an extremely difficult area of research, right? Doing the work that you do and studying the things that you've studied, in your opinion, what is consciousness? Well, it's you know, you're, in some ways you're kind of lucky because I have a I have a favorite definition of consciousness. All right. I re so I really like definitions that are specific, 
right? And that's one of my goals, like studying curiosity in mice, is to give a very specific definition to what curiosity is. It's not going to be the all-encompassing one. It's not going to mean exactly what it means when we talk about it in a casual setting. But, and and my definition for consciousness is also rather similar. It's not my own definition, but it comes up, it came up from another researcher, and it goes as follows: as follows, it's the universal accessibility of information within the brain, and the way that um, the way that you can examine this is you can present visual stimulation to an individual um, and give them only a defined period of time for them to process that information. So you can show something to somebody for like 10 hours, 10 minutes, 10 seconds, one second, a few milliseconds, right? And at some point in time, when you have such a brief exposure of the visual information, um, <clears throat> if you are scanning the person's brain at the same time, you can see the information flow through the brain. So you can like see, you know, like the visual system get activated and then, you know, the thalamus typically gets activated as well. And then, then after a certain amount of time, like the whole brain can be processing this stuff. Now it turns out that about, at about six milliseconds, you cross this border where the information becomes universally accessible to the brain. Uh, and what I mean by that is if the information is below six milliseconds, then you can follow where the information goes and it just stops at a certain point and it never creates like a, like, like a propagating wave elsewhere. Uh, and if it goes beyond six milliseconds, then you see it goes past this certain you know, neural circuit and then it just goes everywhere. So just all of a sudden it becomes accessible to everywhere. At the same time that that threshold is crossed, individuals acknowledge that they actually, uh, that they actually saw it. Right, um, and so this is when they become. This is when the experience becomes a conscious experience. Before that, it's still processed by the brain, right? But it's it's at the subconscious level. And then if you show it an even an even shorter period of time, then it doesn't even get processed at the subconscious level. Um, and so for me, the, you know, the definition of consciousness is the universal accessibility of information. So when you have something like a neural circuit that you can throw or information, electrical. Uh, information in your brain and you can throw it around and, and take it to different places and use it and remember it that's that's when you're conscious of it otherwise you're not so this is a specific definition right yeah how does this relate to you know uh, dreams and so forth well I think in, in 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 many in many instances when you're dreaming most people don't remember their dreams or you there's this fleeting second where you do so there might be this moment where your dreams actually transfer into the, the realm of consciousness for a bit I'm an extremely active dreamer so not every night, but on a lot of nights. Do like, you keep a dream journal? No, I don't keep a dream journal. But I remember many of my dreams for years afterwards. You are very fortunate. Uh -huh. It's a lot of fun. So it's, it's you know so so, it's, so if you're able to, I think when you're active dreaming, then you're you're in this state where um, essentially your dreams are are, are able to tr to go many different places in your brain. And when you're not active dreaming, I think most of the stuff is taking place in uh, like within the visual cortex itself. Um, as opposed to you know really interacting with many other areas of the brain. So it's short term memory then. Um, it's no, it's it's subconscious. And yeah, and for for whatever reason, often when I'm dreaming, and I mean often, like a lot of nights, I guess my brain is sort of in this quasi conscious subconscious state, and I can have a lot of fun. Like when I wake up in the morning, I feel incredible. 
because essentially I've been like laughing and hooting and hollering and flying around <laughs> and like, you know, doing all this like awesome stuff that you could never ever do in real life. You know, I can't fly in real life. You know, like I've tried many times and I just can't <laughs> get off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but uh in my dreams it's like it's second nature i've trained other people how to fly in my dreams you know like i like and uh i had a flying dream last week i can relate those are my oh, most favorite ones that's oh, the best and you feel yeah. great when you wake up in the morning you know yeah. like it's, I hate those it's... dreams <laughs> see i have had the exact opposite experience oh, when i was dreams. doing dream hacking i would wake up physically exhausted like i didn't get any rest because well not physically i would wake up feeling mentally exhausted you know, because I, I, I need I needed that disconnect. Um, my wife actually kind of made me quit doing it because I was I was keeping her up at night. I would be like running in bed. Um, I was doing all this stuff, and my wife was like, for for lack of a better word, she's like, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but you need to cut this shit out because I'd be like, she'd be falling off of a cliff, and in my dream, I'd reach over and grab her. Well, I would reach over and grab her in bed. Now, if you're sound asleep and somebody just reaches over and grabs you suddenly, that never ends well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had times where most people wake up from their dreams screaming because of nightmares. There were times where I would wake up from a sound sleep cracking up and be like, and that's a really odd experience <laughs> to just wake up cracking up, you know, with tears coming out of my eyes because I'm laughing so hard. I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know, it's, it's very weird. But to bring all this back around again, it sounds very much like Lobo. If, if what your definition, applying your definition of consciousness to what happened to Lobo and to what happened to Tom – um, it sounds like to some degree you were conscious, um, if in an, if, if in an altered state of consciousness possibly, but you know, yeah. What, 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 what do you think happened to me? Um, yeah, I think you were in a, a state of quasi consciousness. Um, but I would say more conscious than, than unconscious. And there were, there was a lot of electrical activity stimulated in your brain as, as a direct result of like changes in blood flow decreases in in uh, glucose and the dehydration you know the, the fear that you had of, of of dying and having to leave your family alone and stuff and um and and i think your brain was making sense of all this information um and 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 you made sense of it through the visions that you saw um which is incredible to think of how your brain can take you know essentially nonsense or, or noise or or or, or or like gross waves of information and create something so specific. Um, and yet that's, that's essentially what we're doing all the time. So, so, uh, so that, that's what I, that's what I think happened. Um, the, in your case, I think it's really interesting that you don't have this specific thing that, that, that you emerged from it and you said, okay, I go have to, I go have to do this. I, I imagine you don't have that because you didn't really have a lot of faith in, in something like that from the onset going into it. It doesn't seem like you're somebody who really puts a lot of weight into into that sort of things, you know, like the the whole purpose of all different things and blah 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 and the grandiose, uh, you know, unifying theory of like the universe and how that you know, where you fit into it and all this sort of stuff. And so your brain was probably not all that keen on on on, on going from that bend. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's I think it was basically just you know it's all brain stuff. I think really interesting and very cool brain stuff and, and potentially extremely beneficial for you you minus the mcdonald's <laughs> <laughs> see i would have loved to have been strapped to an ekg and and and, and yeah that would i would have loved to see what i mean to me my brain must have been on fire with one it. day 
one day this is going to happen. You're right. It, so people had always wondered about um, like these auras that people experience. People often have visions associated with severe migraines. Yeah, my wife gets uh, optical migraines. Yeah, so one she day stuff. somebody was in a scanner and they had a migraine. And so they got, you know, this, this lucky neurologist got this information about what was happening specifically during a migraine. And this person happened to be somebody who had, you know, you know visual experiences during the migraines. And they saw like this, this spreading slow wave depression occur across the brain um, uh, during the migraine. And the, the actual shape of the, and this sounds crazy, but the actual shape of, 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 of the electroactivity propagating through the brain, or rather the lack of electrical activity propagating through the brain, corresponds to the shapes that this individual would see. Really? So, yeah. So it's like, and there are sort of like blobby things, so maybe like anything would look similar. But, but, but the, certainly the progression of the waves and how fast like the, 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 the visual hallucinations would grow corresponded to one another. Wow. And so it's it's like really just like this is like sort of this weird thing that essentially you're just watching electro activity in your brain and you're seeing it as this vision. I mean, that's, that's just so like, awesome. That's so nuts. I know, like totally crazy. And uh, eventually, somebody is going to have a heart attack while they're being scanned, and they're going to uh, they're going to die or have a near death experience or something, and we're going to get some information out. You know, it's just it's just a matter of time. So. And we're looking for volunteers. Uh, it's, just, it's so great. I mean, that. I mean, it sounds terrible. No, you know what? I'm a heartless prick. It would be awesome to see that. I mean, just think about it. just the amount of information that could be gathered. Just, I mean, I tell the wife all the time. I just just donate my body to science. I would love just. And that's not going to fly. It would have been cool if you had a CAT scan while all that was going on. Your wife would have thought oh, they were poking about me, it, but... me with all kinds of crap. You know, like I had a, I had sonograms and everything else while I was. No, they didn't put me on anything like that. But it would have been great to be able to get out of it and find out where your brain activity was going on. Yeah, I mean, for God's sake, who knows? That would have been great. Oh, I got one more question. I got one more question. Then I'm going to let you go. Which this could potentially be a big one. Um, when memories are stored, are you of the theory that they are stored throughout the brain, all over different parts of the brain, or is it stored all in one area of the brain? Because to my knowledge, there's two schools of thought on that. Uh, yeah, so I think it's um, I, th I think it's more of the distributed type. Um, the reason why I th think that is because our brains essentially work with electrical information, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so when you experience something, you get all these neurons fire and they're essentially propagating electrical waves throughout your brain. My theory is that those electrical waves are then continually propagated in like in sort of like a, the engram. And so you have the, the, the strength of communication between particular neurons is, is tweaked in a way that you get this specific circuit. Now, the location of that circuit is not actually really all that important. It's just the fact that that the brain has a way of tracing that circuit back to the original information, mm -hmm. right? So, so it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a fingerprint. Imagine you were like flying over the ocean. I'm sure you've done. And you look down and you take, a, you see the waves. It just looks like a mess of you know water. But all those waves are there for a specific reason because of winds and all that. And 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 essentially, if you had the, the right models and so forth, as your brain hopefully does for the activity that's going on, you could trace back 
you know, information about how all those waves got there. And so I see, I see memories as kind of a similar thing. So there's this like reoccurring pattern of electrical activity. Now, in order for that to be maintained, you have to have asynchronous neuronal firing. But I mean, like, not all the neurons of the brain fire at the exact same time, but, you know, different ones fire at different times. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you would lose all the information. But when you sleep, you actually go through phases where you have this synchronous activity, you know, there's waves of, of, of all the neurons in a certain area firing and then, like, all the neighboring neurons fire. And that's totally incompatible. Uh, with with maintaining memories like that, so at some point in time you have to actually use molecules to lay down in the neurons the, these weights um, for tweaking, you know, the the synapses, so that you have you can re you can reignite the circuit, and then things will propagate again. So it's essentially, what I think is you have you know this you have this engram, you have this electrical activity which continually propagates, but then at some point in time it has to go offline and then it can come back up because you've you've made molecular marks and the molecular marks that you make are can be totally different for totally different memories and i think they're they're largely redundant um and 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 i think the more important the memory is and the more you've really studied something then the more different areas of the brain the more distributed it will be the more different molecular markers you have setting it down makes it more robust um so in general i'm i'm, I'm more of the distributed distributed type so you're um, of the idea that the whole brain is the hard drive and not just different parts of it are for memory? Well, it's not. It's really not the whole brain. It's actually uh, different parts of a sub part of the brain. So it's. I mean, I, I don't think like you, you know, like the like the, the midbrain and the pons. You know, like the spinal cord, for example. I don't think many, much of this stuff is contributing to to most of your autobiographical memories. It's mm-hmm. understood that the hippocampus is extremely important for. For memories, certainly uh, that you've experienced in the last you know few weeks or few months and so forth, and and I think the cortex is extremely important for the vast majority of your memories. If you mm-hmm. remove the cortex, you're going to remove like a lot of your brains, and yet your heart will still function, and you'll still be able to do many many things. So, um, <clears throat> so it's uh, it's it's sort of like I don't know, it's, it's kind of like a mishmash, but it's definitely not like one neuron has has a memory or like one synapse has a memory. It's well, those are just the means to trans to uh, transport the, the information, though, right? The gray that's, matter is actually that's the way I see it. Yeah, yeah the but there have been people who have thought kind of like a certain neuron was actually important for this. And yeah, but um, you need gray matter and you need white matter. Yeah, I mean the gray the gray matter is is like areas of the brain that are more concentrated in the neurons themselves, and the white matter is like the the connections that are that those are the insulated roads, right? with myelin. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, those are like the major highways. But there's lots of roads within the gray matter as well. They're just that's good to just... know. I think I killed a lot of my major roads. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was something I wanted to mention um, with Lobo in terms of because the roads and you've always been asking Lobo, you know, what are you what are you getting out of this? What's the specific thing? And 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 Lobo, it seems as though like a year later now, you you really don't have anything specific. And, and my guess is that you, you maybe you never will. And yet, you know. Rojan claims that you've changed in a fundamental way, um, and and I suppose that other people may have similar claims. My wife does. So I, I really wanted to mention something um, that was that was commented on by the very first person who ever studied memory in a scientific way. There was this guy named uh, Herman Ebbinghaus. Mm-hmm. He was the first person to really ever look at memory a scientific level and when he did so everybody laughed at him i mean people this is in like uh 1870s 1880s mm-hmm. and people were like you know memory is not a phenomenon that you can study scientifically but he said you know well, i'm going to give it a go he did some really amazing stuff and i won't, I won't really get into 
uh, the type of work he did, unless unless he really pushed me. But what I wanted to to mention was that he he classified memories into three different groups, mm-hmm. and uh, the third of the third group um, was essentially things that um, you've experienced, and yet you have no conscious recollection of them whatsoever, and yet they can have profound effects on on on, on how you conduct your life and who you are as a person. And, you know, if somebody, you know, had this, you know, the forefront of their, of their thinking at the very beginning of onset of like studying memory, well, clearly this is, you know, something that preoccupied them for whatever reason. And it's actually, it's extremely true. Many things that happen, we experience them, we never remember them again. And yet they have a huge, huge effect on us. And, and my guess is that, that, that might be what's, uh, that might be what, what the deal is with you this experience and you may never ever become conscious of exactly what has changed or, or how it's changed but nevertheless you you'll always be changed of it and i think um there there are tons of things in my life and your life and erogen's life and everybody's life that are exactly like that um and and it's pretty it's pretty cool in a, in a sense i think it's completely cool i mean just the fact that my when roe said it I was yeah 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 I'm still the same asshole, <laughs> but you know and then my to an wife, extent yes but no but my <laughs> my I mean, obviously wife, you want McDonald's now so well yeah there's that. <laughs> my my wife has said it on numerous occasions now that I have I am a different person and it pains me at times to have her say that because fundamentally I feel as though I'm the same person, but I know that something happened that changed, whether it's my outlook or my behavioral patterns or just some different quirks. It's a combination of all three. See, it's, it's hard to explain because I know you differently. The interactions we have on the air are often many ways different than the ones we have off the air. I know off the air, I'm a little bit of a tweaked different person. And so are you. Um, but you don't have the same, I want to say self-destructive mentality that you did before. It's, I think maybe things matter a little bit more to you, but it makes sense that your behaviors and a person's behaviors and patterns and things like that are based on what their experiences are. It's what makes a person what they are. You had a significantly strong experience and it goes back to what Besh was talking about at the beginning of the show, the, how people get their fearlessness and their curiosity to explore and things like that. You were presented with a very different thing and you were presented with the possibility of losing your life and you had to fight your way back to where you are now. Um, that can be, on an emotional level, a very profoundly changing thing. Whether or not you want to acknowledge that it's different, it's not a bad thing. You're not, it's not a bad thing that you are a different person. But it's, I can't see how somebody can walk away from something like this and not be a different person. Now, granted, whether or not you went over to the other side or anything like that, it's like Beth said, you did have an experience. And that experience on a subconscious level or any level will weigh into what you are, what you think and what you do. I hope I'm making sense here. I say that a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just, I, think, I don't, it's just that it, well, you can't because you're, you're, you're on the inside looking out, you know, you're, it's, it's well, that's a, the thing. I'm on the inside looking out. I'm, 
I know what happened. Like Tom's experience, Tom's experience changed him profoundly, you know, and he knows it. So yeah, well, you know what? My experience of getting clean and trying to take my own life that last time was life changing. It's all part of it. It's so, all it's yeah. all part of it, you know. Last time yeah. you wanted to kill yourself, this time thing. around you didn't want to go. <laughs> that's the thing, though. I I'm I've never been afraid to die. But this is different. You have a family and other things you. Yeah, have. But I'm still. I've never been afraid to die. Doesn't I'm matter. Still not afraid to die. Besha's mice are curious. They're not necessarily fearless unless he tells them to be. I'm not saying I'm fearless. I'm not saying I'm fearless in Besh's the Besha's mice. Here we go. Thanks. I'm, I've, been, I've been reduced to a rodent. <laughs> told but, you we're pinky in the brain. Yeah. But I, I still, I don't, I'm not. You, you can't see it. It's, I, I understand that. And don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. No, it's not that I, it's not that I can't see it. It's, it's not that I can't see it. It's the fact that People see things that that I know aren't real. No, people you don't perceive them as th- real. People see things that I know are not real. You mean about you? Yes. No, you can't. Well, Roger, no, Roger, I mean, give, give him a little salt here. I mean, it could be, it could be. Uh, I may I mean, be processing things differently than I was before. The, the real, the real test of this would be if somebody. It come to you, and they didn't realize what had happened, and they then said, "There's something different about you." See, now that's happened too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, and we're done. But it's not. Bash is a scientist. Been, he has just proven you wrong. <laughs> no, but this is the thing. What was no, said? Because math and stuff. Yeah, but it's the per the people that have come up to me that didn't know what had happened. That had been out of my life for quite a while. One of the girls that I haven't seen in God, almost 20 years. I grew up with her. She if she remembers me as this nice kid who was very polite and, and a gentleman. And I never saw myself that way. But she said, you know, you've changed. But you're still that sweetheart I knew. And I'm like, what Aww. the hell are you talking about? Aww. Ah, shut up. But it's, they said something had changed, but I was still fundamentally me. Yeah, that's about what I'm saying too. And it's, it's shocking me because I don't, it's not that I don't see that I've, I know I've changed. I know I've changed because there's stuff that I, that I do and I say and I act a different way now. But at the same time, I don't know if it's a, a more pure version of what i was before uh, i don't know i've never put that much thought into it i have for the last year wow <laughs> well do you, do you feel more you uh what <laughs> i think it's a little personal don't you think Bash? i don't know if that's possible at this point i am married <laughs> uh i don't i don't know Oh God! You fit just fine on this show. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you get it. You don't. You don't need another. You don't need an invite. Just say, "Hey, I want to talk." <laughs> but you know what? I, I I don't know. It's hard. It's no, like, it's I like when know, I try to have almost done when it, I try so. to explain when I try to explain to people that aren't recovering drug addicts what it is to be a recovering drug addict. Unless you've been in that pit of despair, it's hard to understand. 
until you start describing despair and other people have been through it. Then it strips away the fact that you're an addict. You just, you're just on the same base level of that feeling of despair. If someone's been through a fundamental life change, whether they didn't have to die, but if they understand how much you've sat and thought about what could have been, you can relate to that person. I don't know. I've done a, a whole lot more of relating to people instead of comparing to people within the last year. Then maybe that's all it needed. Yeah. I don't like know. McDonald's. That's not, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We're talking to a neuroscientist and I'm, I'm waxing poetically about freaking fast food. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he's here. <laughs> All right, Besh. Well, I am gonna I am gonna let you go from the interview now because we have had you on here for a really long time. Two hours and seven minutes, eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's longer than that. It goes well, hundred. It's one hundred and twenty minutes to two hours, sixty minutes to an hour, and we're at two hundred minutes. So, yeah, it, it's been a while. <laughs> I hope you have some material you can use for a podcast. I think we have a, every yeah. bit of this is going. <laughs> to, so. I think there's going to be a whole lot of editing going yeah. on. <laughs> Well, man, thank you very much for coming on here and letting us pick your brain about our brains. Um, this has been fantastic. I'm really yeah. glad that we've met you and we've been able to talk to you because this absolutely was not at all what I was expecting to happen nope. tonight. And um, <laughs> I, I I love what you do. The fact that I didn't know anything about what you were doing, what your actual scientific work w was, and um, – you don't research your, uh, your interviews well, before. You I, I did, but I, well, I don't know specifically what you were doing. Me and Lobo have talked about you many times off the air. You um, said you build cars. No, we did research on you, but we didn't know specifically what you did. Yeah, I mean, we, I remember when we, we looked we up your bio and stuff, we were actually a little bit intimidated. We're like, why does yeah, this like, guy want to come on our show? Why does this guy listen to our show? So, <laughs> yeah, you guys are pretty fun. So. Yeah, we try. Well, it's like I've told you before off the air. We, we don't take ourselves very seriously, but we take the topics that we talk about very serious. Um, and we try to present things in a different light and in a different way. And we try to make things like this digestible and interesting to other people, um, which you've done a fantastic job of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much for coming on here. Thank you for staying up at three 30 in the morning and staying up, you know, how late you are right now. Cause I know it's super early there. Going on 6am at this point. Yeah. Um, I guess you can just Jesus go to work man. and tell everybody you were up partying all night, but <laughs> this this is partying. <laughs> I'm gonna go to sleep and I'll wake up and I'll think I was dreaming. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry yeah. for the nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for doing this. I can't express how much we appreciate and how much fun it's been talking to you. It's been great. Thanks, fun you. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Ciao guys. And that was the mind-numbingly long, blown-away episode with Besh about everything neurological in the world. We now understand everything. Life, the universe, and everything. 42. 42. That was the episode for 42. That didn't come out right at all. Um, <laughs> no. No. I am so cooked right now. <laughs> So, yeah, anyways, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. hope you guys got some stuff out of it. 
I know I did. Um, moving on. Uh, as you've probably heard in this episode, we've gotten a couple of new ads because we've picked up on Twitter. Our Twitter feed has gone nuts. There's no other way to put it. We have a lot of shows that are now following us. We're following a lot of other shows. Some of it has to do with because we've kind of made friends with this other show called No Totally, which is a – boy, Sean. Yeah, movie review podcast. And I finally got around to listening to it, putting two to two together and realizing who it was. <laughs> and I really like their show. Uh, they just – My sister Aaron's husband. Topically discuss movies and stuff. Really nice guy. Really, really cool. Yeah. His um, co-host Brian is from Massachusetts out here. <laughs> really? He doesn't sound yep. like he's from Massachusetts. That's because he suppresses his uh, accent while he's talking. It's not even that. His his general attitude and stuff like that doesn't sound like he's from Massachusetts. Really? What, he doesn't sound like a masshole? He does not sound like a masshole. <laughs> Didn't want to say that. I did. Uh, we also have – I've been paying attention to this other show called – Amusings of a Shy, which I probably have played her at in the show too. She has a podcast that deals with cryptocurrency, Dogecoin, and things like that, which is something that I never really thought I would be interested in. But she also does a really good job of covering how things happen in the internet, like with the whole Silk Road thing being shut down and uh, the security implications of that. Um, She's a fierce podcaster. Her level of output is insane. How this girl manages to put out the amount of shows and content that she does blows my mind. Um, if she's out there listening, Shibe, if you're out there, I only have one bit of criticism and it's constructive criticism. Uh, her editing is a little choppy, but I'm not sure if that's because she puts more thought into what she's talking about than the audio editing side of it. And the other big thing is her intro for her show, if anybody hears it, if you're wearing headphones, turn it down a little bit because the intro for her show is almost ear-piercingly painful at sometimes, the sound effect that she uses. Other than that, she's got a really cool show, and I think I might at some point have her on here to talk about the realm of cryptocurrency and what's going on with that because it's far more fascinating than I thought it would be. Um, and there's a few other shows, but I don't want to jump a whole bunch of shows for people to go out and listen to in one episode. Why? So as time goes on, because it's kind of, I would rather say, listen, these two shows I really like a lot, go listen to these. And then another time say, I'm really into these two shows. Now go listen to these rather than say, here's 15 podcasts that I've <laughs> since listened to that support us. And we want you to go out and support them. I would rather I have, give everybody a little bit of light in the sun. I have one. Hmm. NPR Invisibilia. Yeah, that's a really crazy show. No, it's nuts. But um, I need some people to email us or call our voicemail and get in contact. A, because we haven't really heard from anybody recently. Um, other than the whole John Teeter thing, which I don't want to go into. Um, Why did you even say that? <laughs> I don't, just opened another can of worms. You know what? I don't ever want to cover a topic like that ever again. Nope. Uh, Nope. It's just <laughs> no. I don't no. want to go into it. No. Just let it die. Man, we but, did it. Um, it's done. But yeah, I'd like to hear from people. Call us, give us a voicemail, uh email us. One of the My things Google numbers is back on. Yeah. It is. That's right. You have received phone calls. I have. But what I want to hear from people is 
recently we've the show's gone through one of its evolutions. A while ago we were just releasing episodes. We still want to do funny episodes every once in a while. But I kind of came to this thing in where I was like, I don't want to release just stupid episodes all the time that people aren't going to get anything out of. So I've made a real conscious effort to try to crunch things down and put out more meaningful episodes where people can learn something or get something more out of it other than us, us sitting around covering stupid news stories all the time. We're still going to do that, but I don't plan on doing it anywhere as, not, as much. Also, the length of our episodes has increased because we have added more bandwidth and storage space and stuff like that to our our web hosting. Um, what I'm curious about, and I really, really want to know this, is is everybody fine with the two-hour format? Would you like us to go back to having episodes that are only one hour long with shows broken up? Um do you lose interest in the episodes when they're a lot longer like this? Because some people, they'll listen to us in their car when they're driving or when they're, you know, doing whatever. They'll listen to us with headphones and stuff on. Myself, I tend to like one to two hour long podcasts. I like the longer ones, but that's just me. If people want me to break them back down into smaller one hour episodes and bite sized portions like we used to have, I can do that. Unless the episode runs like an hour and a half long or something, I'm obviously not going to break an episode up at the hour mark and then drop a half hour episode a week later. I'm not going to do that. But um, do people want us to stick with that? Is our format working for everybody right now or, you know, those kinds of things? Like the show that we just did and we broke it up, was that too long of a show? Um, Get back with me and let me know. Also, we very much, and I, I don't ever like to do this. I only do this about once or twice a year where I- We need do, donations. We do need donations. Plain and simple. He doesn't like saying it because he feels like we're milking a stone. We need donations. We have bills to pay. We have server costs. Beer to buy. Oh, uh, got mouths to subscribe to. <laughs> Pornhub. Wait, what? <laughs> But no, really, we could use a few bucks uh, to like. I've, I got to get a new computer here. So the computer that runs the show. I'm in the process of trying to put another one together. I could use money to help put that computer together to run the show. Uh, we've got Skype bills and things like that that we have to pay. We need money for the guests that we've got coming on the show for books and stuff that we purchase. None of the money that we get, and we really don't get a whole lot from everybody. Uh, but if even a small percentage of our listeners out there were to donate like five bucks here or five bucks there or just whatever, it helps tremendously because we've got guests coming up in the future. Even though we haven't done an episode lately, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes with us booking guests. Again, this goes back to me crunching down and trying to get to the essence of what we were trying to do. We're focusing on getting certain guests on and we've had to buy their books to read them, to do all of these things. So if people out there could donate, go to our website. Uh, projectarchivist.com off to the side off to the right there's a little paypal donate button if anybody could toss anything in there that would be great um and i don't want to harp on anybody very seldom where i beg people for money and the other thing is we've only got about four or five people that really donate to the show and contribute to it and keep it afloat and it's kind of not fair to to have to keep calling on the same people over and over again and saying hey could you donate to the show you know i do appreciate the people out there that donate um, but we, we could use the help. We really, really could. Cause I'm going to be honest with you. There's been a few times where I thought about just tossing the towel in because it gets expensive to do this and we don't want to make any money on it, but we would like to be able to make enough to be able to pay the bills for the year, for a year or so. And it's really not a lot. You know, I think, uh, altogether it costs us maybe like 200 bucks or something like that total 
to keep the show afloat for the year and to be able to do everything that I need to do with it. So wow. I dropped a grand on my freaking kids' costumes for dance and their dance stuff for this month. Yeah. Kids ain't cheap. No. <laughs> Nothing's cheap. Gas oh. ain't cheap. Pork well, gas is cheap, cheap now. Beer ain't cheap. <sighs> gas is cheaper than beer. Being a research scientist in Switzerland isn't cheap. <laughs> Going to oh, Mars dude. ain't oh. cheap. <laughs> he's got, I, man. He's I know, Europe. he's got a lab. He's, he's got the good chocolate. He's got the good cheese. He's like, I got a lab. I got assistance. I rule. He's great. He's great. <laughs> oh, my he's God. Like, First world problems. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Bash. All right. Um, I think that's uh, pretty much everything that I can think of to talk about. I Do we have any shout outs to give? <sighs> you know, we probably did, but I... Um, I can't remember any off the we'll top. We'll of have my to head. do it next show. Oh yeah, I've got one. Um, there's a guy named uh, Stefan, who's up up in Grand Blanc, Michigan, and I'm in his town. Um, almost. Well, I, I am in his part of part of town. Um, every night delivering out there, and he's one of our Twitter followers, and he sent us a shout out. And I mentioned uh, where I had to go to court over the whole UFO incident, but um, <laughs> yeah. So he You're, gave me a you, shout out. You, so. you just did that. Uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah that's I don't know awesome. what I'm talking about. Um, Good. There's a kid here in town, Christopher, that, that in Wallingford that uh, listens to our show. Mm. I, I, we were, I was supposed to go out to lunch with him, and I, it just didn't happen. I don't know. We're rambling at this point. Yeah, we are. We're done. <clears throat> Anyways, this is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. And I wonder if my house smells as weird as everyone else seems to. Wow. This is Lobo from Connecticut. <laughs> Sears Hardware is going out of business. I am dancing with joy. Sears Hardware is going out of business? Yipper. The whole company? Radio Shack is filing for bankruptcy. Well, I'm fine with bankruptcy filing for, for, for Radio Shack filing for bankruptcy. They've been a, a stupid store for years, but Sears is going to suck. Sears Hardware, not Sears Sears. Oh, Sears okay. Sears Hardware. All right. The place is the den of thieves. You about gave me a stroke there. <laughs> no. It's a retarded way to end the show. So, dude, whatever. We're out, folks. Peace. I don't live in Detroit. Bye. <laughs>
He just called Bigfoot <laughs> Sam Squinch. That's for the freaking win. He just Sam won Squinch. the internet. <laughs> <laughs> he just won the damn internet. 